Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. <laughs> How are you today, Rob? And where are we? Today, Russell, I am feeling Neolithic. <laughs> and why do you think I'm feeling Neolithic? Because I think we've just been somewhere that has Neolithic energy and Neolithic properties to it. And where would that be? Well, we've just been at the iconic location. And I mean iconic. You will see the pictures of us there. We had an exclusive tour today where we got to have a photo shoot in the iconic location of Stonehenge. The original public artwork. Stonehenge. I mean, what can you say apart from, like, iconic? Who doesn't know Stonehenge, Rob? And having visited today, all I know is I want more, Russell. More, more, more. More, more, more. <laughs> and luckily, we are now in Bruton in Somerset. It's one of our favourite places. We've been here before on the show and we have returned to Hauser and Worth, the centre of excellence for contemporary art. And it's just literally blowing my mind already and we've only just it's arrived. so beautiful here. But who, who brought us here? Because we've been collaborating and in partner with uh, an incredible brand, BMW, and they picked us up today in the most amazing car and yes of course we're talking about a brand so we're going to big it up but the reality is it's amazing it's an electric car you and me are both obsessed with electric cars there needs to be more electric pumps if anybody listening in the government please help us out but this car that picked us up today is phenomenal it was the bmw fully electric i7 that took us on our trip to somerset didn't it that's right and the reason we love bmw is because they have been passionately collaborating with artists uh, galleries uh, different creative digital platforms such as talk art yes. um, and they help to bring about brand new artworks brand new ideas and are platforming all of this talent and it's been such a privilege to collaborate with them yeah, it's about bringing BMW to culture. It's about bringing people to culture and sharing that experience with with BMW and with all these museums and uh, great exhibitions. So exactly. long may they live. I think today's episode is going to be so exciting here in Somerset. And we came down in the i7, which is a brand new electric car. And um, I've actually got my own electric car, which is an i3. And it's pretty much changed my life. I love how powerful it is. And I just love driving it. It's sort of brought, brought pleasure to my life. Hauser & Worth, who we're visiting today, and BMW both share a commitment to building sustainable practices alongside pioneering technology and have teamed up to create an unforgettable travel and art experience, a talk art experience, um, to Hauser & Worth Somerset on the occasion of a very unique exhibition featuring Henry Moore. Ooh, I love which Henry is Moore. why I was saying more, 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 more. <laughs> So Henry Moore's um, new exhibition has his most celebrated works and also a deeply personal personal selection of artworks and objects that he collected um, through his lifetime and it's being curated that that particular display by his daughter Mary Moore who, who we're, we're going to talk to today meet yeah yeah I can't wait and we're gonna also going to talk to Hannah Hyam who works at the Henry Moore Foundation as a senior curator of collections and research but we've got to do a big thank out to uh, BMW UK because they gave us the opportunity to experience their all new fully electric BMW i7 for our trip down to Somerset this is BMW's new flag Ship, and it's demonstrating how an exclusive driving experience and the ultimate feeling of onboard well-being can be combined with a commitment to sustainability and you know what we feel about sustainability rob um this car what are the features we can enjoy so many features the car was amazing and it has amazing innovative usage of light and i just think it's such a forward-thinking 
car. You know, I love the idea that it's taking us to this next generation of electric cars. And um, it's largely activated via sensors, like the doors even like flew open. It was just super cool. Back to the future. But also we both had massages on the way up, Rob. I know. It was, we were sat in our chair and you know you get them chair massages. Well, basically we were in the back seat being chair massaged on our way to Somerset. Hello, BMW. And also it's got sound elements which are composed by Hans Zimmer. Yeah, Hans Zimmer. Every time we pulled away and accelerated it made this like boom noise that was created by Hans Zimmer. I know, Sorry. and there's even a panoramic screen where you can like watch movies. So I'll be watching your next show that you're about to go and film. Exactly. In, uh, it was incredibly relaxing. It was personal, it was efficient, and it was sporty. And we absolutely loved it. And it's fully electric. And it yeah, but it goes up to 400 miles, you know. Crazy. Yeah. And also, there was a bit of cashmere in there, which I know you love on an interior of a car. Well, I love jumpers, and I love um, cashmere, especially when it's all around me in a car. But anyway, I just love how forward-thinking that car is. And today's exhibition is also forward-thinking, because he was an artist who looked back to ancient practices mm. and pre-Columbian civilizations and all different kinds of histories and sort of took them into a new place. Like, I think his work is totally extraordinary. He made historical cultures contemporary. He did. And um, he's inspired so many artists, and he's inspired us, and what a privilege for us to be here today at Houserworth in Somerset with BMW. So let's begin. So let's go inside to the exhibition. Here we go. Um, so, hello, <laughs> Hannah and Mary. Hello. Uh, we are in... The is this the threshing room? I want to call it threshing barn. threshing barn. That's right. We're in threshing barn at Housenworth in Somerset. Um, could you introduce yourselves, please, to Talk Art? I'm Hannah Hyam. I am a curator at the Henry Moore Foundation. And I'm Mary Moore, uh, the sculptor's only child and daughter. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so, Mary. Uh, <laughs> Saying this, being a sculptor's only child and daughter, why, why is that important um, for you to point out? Because in every other interview or whatever, I never said that. So, so it's exclusive for us. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it's important to say that. Did, so you, you set up the foundation? Yes, but I set up the foundation. I think possibly what I'm suggesting is that I had a lot of very... It was my life with my mother and father. My life with my father was very concentrated. Being a a late only child, there was a tremendous amount of um, connection with their adult lives, connection with what he was doing. He was 50 when I was born. So in a way, I was like a... A a receptor, you know, a receptor of of every thought, everything that he was doing, possibly way before my years. I was kind of absorbing and um, ideas, and I I was absorbing his sculptural work, his sculptural ideas, his thoughts as he voiced them. So maybe that's why I say that. Right. What what was it like growing up with a dad who was so active in art? Well, he was, he was an incredibly generous man and he was a very direct um, person and he loved people, so he was able to uh, commute. He loved meeting people. He, people would arrive at our house who had made no appointment. They'd arrive on a Sunday, they'd arrive at night and we let them in and they, he took them around the studios. They had tea with us. It was kind of open house. So in a way, I grew up in a very public arena because not only that was happening, but also... Um, there were uh, TV crews and, and, and newspapers. I mean, it was a very, yeah, it was a very public life. 
Because your dad was a global star within his lifetime. Well, in, in a way, it was a kind... Yes, we had coming to our house extraordinary people like Benjamin Britten or Lauren Bacall or Charles Lawton or, you know, I mean, anybody you could think of. Uh, my, I, obviously, I can't think of them. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> wow. You know, so they... And, and they, it was just taken for granted and they were... My parents lived in a very modest way. My mother would make them take their shoes off if they were going to walk on her yellow carpet with oh, muddy wow. feet. You know, they were served tea. My father would take them down to the studio. It was done in a very natural way. Uh, and he was really... Um, he was interested in them. Um, but mostly what he wanted to do was help people understand sculpture because I think when he was born... Um, Edwardian and Victorian sculpture had been, um, it was seen of, seen as kind of attached to the wall or on a funereal monument or a, a man on a horse in the middle of a town, you know, or a, a sculpt. A, a Commem sculpt. Like a commemoration of an commemoration. event. Commemoration. Yeah. So it was, it was not freestanding sculpture, it was narrative realistic sculpture. So um, what he really did was take sculptures sort of away from the wall and away from it being like a painting stuck on a wall and into the middle of a room. And I was going in and out of his studio and modelling beside him. So I grew up understanding form, which actually people don't think about all the time. They think about, you know, particularly because we look at our screens mm. or our iPads or our phones. Um, we don't think about relating to, to form. I was so excited to talk about Henry Moore because <laughs> for me he had this enthusiasm for making as well and this kind of very handmade um, skill that he had. And I know that's really obvious to say, but I really think we should highlight it because I heard about when he was at um, college, he was told to make um, like a, a project in a certain way with a machine or something, and then he handmade it. Yeah. Because he had that kind of thrill for yes. the hand making. And actually, this kind of, okay, so all of my, I mean, my, all the games we played, even at my seventh birthday party when I had lots of little, you know, all the little girls came, my father got out the bathroom scales and he guessed the weight of each of my guests. No way. So because a sculptor knows exactly how much everything weighs, he and my mother had carried huge blocks of stones, you know, from the garden and every game we played was about how far am I from you and where is the centre of this piece of paper? And, you know, they were measuring quantifying visual games that um, exercised, in a way, your, your visual mental skills. So right. you're right, that's probably exactly why he made that thing without that machine. Yeah. What did your friends think of that growing up? Were you very well, popular? I, I Were they like, let's go to <laughs> no, Mary's no. house? I, mean, I thought, I didn't think twice about it. I thought, okay... You know, because, you know, I mean, that, so in came the scales and he said, you're th three stone, two pounds or whatever. And he was probably within two pounds of their weight. Because um, I had this, I had a very unorthodox, um, yeah. yes, I, I accepted it. I accepted all these weird things as just part of life. I just, I just love the fact you have all these celebrities passing through, and they, I guess they were coming as fans, but as collectors potentially, or uh, they came as fans, they came as collectors, they came as friends, they came maybe as architects or clients. Um, but really, I think why they kept on coming, or they had an increased kind of relationship with him, was because he had um, 
an enormous likability. He liked people, so people liked him. So he was instantly very curious about them, but also he was a very good teacher. And this big yellow sitting room that we had, he had a big drawing room, and in this drawing room were much of his collection, not his own work, but works that he's, he'd collected, African masks and paintings and stones and objects. And he used this room as a didactic room to teach people how to, sort of, how to look at things and how to... How to see. How to see, because he said people were formed blind, but he could teach them not to be. He said he could teach anybody to draw within a, you know, quite quickly, but also... Wow. Yeah, so it's about using a visual, emotional, intellectual part of yourself that possibly you don't use all the time. That you connect anyway, through your hand. Yes. So this was the house in Hampstead, right? No, he left, he had a studio in Hampstead which was bombed during the war. And he'd it been, just avoided the house, hadn't yeah, it? Yeah, and he'd avoided, it was his studio, and they'd been staying with friends in Hertfordshire, and when they drove back that night, I think they found they were prevented from going into the studio, it had been bombed. So he'd realised, he went back to the friends, and they said, oh, there's this house to rent up the road, it's half an old farm, and they moved into it, cost about 200 quid, and slowly, you know, <clears throat> over, the, over time, as he sold more work, he was able to buy the whole house and then a larger garden. And that's where he made his studios, and that's where I grew up. Wow. So, and, and it was a, a studio, like a live-work environment? Yes, yeah, so I was really lucky. Sculptors make fantastic dads because they're very <laughs> practical. They, they work at home. You can go into their studio. You can fiddle around with clay or paint or cut things up or do whatever you want. Or you can say, make me a lion or make me this... You know. Would he so, make presents for you, like Christmas presents and birthday presents? No, no, presents? no, no. He didn't really make me Christmas presents and birthday presents, but he would, he would give me drawings and things. But there was... Uh, children love making art. They love painting. They love making things. And I was able to go into the studio and make things all all the time. Wow! I like the fact that you talk about him teaching as well, because all his siblings, well, many of his siblings became teachers. Yes, he came from a family of teachers. But then, in a way, he was born at a time when you know he he was born in Castleford, the seventh son of or seventh child of a miner, and at that time, uh, education was kind of the way that you changed your life. So they believed in teaching. It was a time when people believed that education could change your life and, and give you a fuller, better in every way. That was the answer, the key to life. Really. Wow, because I've read that your, your granddad played violin and yes. read Shakespeare. Do you remember your granddad being... No, I never met him. Ah. And I never met my grandmother. And, and my mother um, was from Kiev actually, and she'd been a uh, refugee during the Russian Revolution. So in a way, she had no relations. So in a way, we were this tribe, we were just, even though my father had family, we, um, we simply seemed to be a little family, a little group of three people who, when we closed the door, you know, and the world uh, sort of ceased to exist outside, but all the t- uh, it was, a uh, yeah... It was Sounds strange. idyllic, like a little satellite of culture. Yeah, actually, the, the family unit really inspired his work, didn't it? Once you were born, I think he started to make mother and child works and that kind of became a, a body of work. Is it really nice and fun to like be able to look back and sort of see those sculptures? And um, Yes, he said that he had three favourite subjects and one of them was the mother and child, which he could, you know, which he endlessly returned to, uh, the reclining figure. Yes. 
and the interior-exterior form and the interior-exterior form, which is a more abstract idea mm -hmm. of a mother and child in that it can be a larger form protecting a smaller, weaker form or any of those things. Um, what did you ask me? <laughs> Just about looking back. Like, is it, is it nice to be able to look at the sculptures, you know, Or now? drawings. In a way, it's lovely to have those drawings of me, but I don't think of them particularly as me. Right, right, right. You know, and I think when I, uh, I went round so many museums and you, the Uffizi and the National Gallery and so many things where you see sort of Renaissance, mm. Madonnas and child and mothers and child, and so I kind of related these drawings, or certainly the sculptures I related to that, I didn't relate those to me. To yourself, yeah. yeah. Um, so we are now in the first room of this extraordinary new exhibition at Hauser & Worth. Um, the title is Sharing Form, Henry Moore. And um, this runs until the 4th of September. Now, it's really interesting thinking about, you were just talking about the Uffizi and all these kind of connections to, like, historic artworks. Um, obviously, the whole of his body of work has been kind of inspired by and um, taking um, older ideas into a new place um, that have continued to grow, you know, even now, seeing them installed here. They seem to come to life in a whole brand new way for a whole new generation. But I was really interested in the idea that he was inspired by, like, um, pre-Columbian kind of artwork and, and all these kind of historic ideas. Um, yes, and I'll hand over to Hannah in a minute. I mean, I think the thing was, he came along at a time when you'd had this very pre-Raphaelites, pre very realistic art. They'd been uh, made to draw from plaster casts of great Michelangelo's in uh, art school, <clears throat> and he completely rejected that. And so the whole idea was, uh, and you said the little story about where he actually copies the work or makes the work without using a measuring tool, which mm. is, in fact, a demonstration of direct carving. Mm. And so there was this movement. I mean, it, also it had begun with Picasso and Matisse and so forth in um, France, where people were moving away from what he called a sort of classical shackles, and they were determined to kind of uh, uh, look at um, ancient and cultural and different civilizations in the different museums, like the Musée de l'Homme in Paris and the British Museum, and they took in a way their, their model from, um, from going back to something that wasn't kind of what we looked upon as classical art. I just love the fact that he always cited his sources and celebrated his sources. There wasn't yeah, a denial of what no, he'd no, been inspired by. No, and in a way, uh, we were talking about it today as we went through the galleries. And, and, um, but sculpture, I mean, he, he believed that sculptural form or certain sculptural forms are subliminally part of different cultures across millennia, across, across time. We all share understandings of form because we are human beings, e.g. a soft, round form as, a, as opposed to an aggressive, pointed form. We all share experience from being children to being grown-ups. From, you know, from everything we do, we have a shared experience. Mm. And this experience, be it emotional or intellectual, or even subliminal, mm. is shared throughout culture, throughout time, really maybe even going back to Paleolithic people. You know, um, you went to Stonehenge, or you yes, will go yes. to Stonehenge. You know, our reaction to size and, and, and form, and, you know, we all share this, and it's an unspoken thing. And we're using uh, an appreciation which isn't verbal, really. It's, it's 
it's a different kind of appreciation. Mm. So when we arrived today at Hauser and Worth, we went outside and there's a giant arch yes. and we actually stood under it, which I know that I've heard you encourage well, for people to experience. Well, the, I mean, the awful thing is that people come up to, uh, and in fact, I'm going to hand over to Hannah in a minute, yeah, yeah. but you come up to a sculpture and you kind of treat it like a painting and you stand and look at it and you think that's the front. Mm. But the whole point about sculpture, and particularly his sculpture, is that if you go around it, and we're going to go around all of them, yes. <laughs> what you're looking at changes as you go around it. Not particularly with these upright motives, which are made to read as columns, really, mm. and so they read in a column way, so they're not like his other sculpture. But um, as you go around it, you're surprised by form. It's rather like meeting a person who you discover different things about their personality or that you couldn't even expect. So as you go around the form, you suddenly think, is this really what I was seeing from the other side? Yeah. And, and we have to learn to do that. That's why, I made, that's why we made sure that everything was moved right into the middle or away from the walls so that people visiting this exhibition would develop a, a kind of form awareness that perhaps they normally didn't use. Well, that's an excellent curatorial choice. So that's a good segue onto Hannah Hyam. Now, you both work together at the yeah. Henry Moore Foundation. I don't. Well, oh, you don't. <laughs> but you know each other from, obviously. We know, of course. We know yes. Yes. for many years. And you have been the senior curator of collections and research there. Yes. How long have you worked there and how did you get that job? <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, I have worked there just six years. Um, I say just because, you know, in Henry Moore terms, that's uh, really recent. Um, and, uh, gosh, I got that job. Um, <laughs> How did, How get did that I job? get that job? <laughs> <laughs> what were they thinking? Um, you knew of Henry's work, obviously. Of course, yeah. I've worked as curator in other places. I'd worked at the Sainsbury Centre where they have Henry Moore um, sculptures. Um, I'd worked at Norwich Castle where actually they have some of the Stonehenge lithographs that we're going to see in a, in a moment. Um, You've worked in Birmingham at the Barber Fine Arts. I have. Yes, Gosh, everywhere. You've done your research. Oh, yes, of course. Um, and also, and it's kind of interesting because it was a little unexpected because I had just um, finished and completed a PhD, which actually was on a, um, a 16th century Florentine sculptor um, who worked in terracotta. And everyone was like, OK, so you're going to go and work in a Renaissance collection. And then I sort of went back to, to this modernist world that I had kind of worked in previously. Um, but Henry Moore was one of those sculptors who, for whom that didn't feel odd because everything that he is looking at and he is absorbing is, as Mary says, this kind of world and, um, of art and it's a world of, of uh, uh, kind of form that dates back millennia. So, you know, it's very easy for me to see the Michelangelo in the Moor and, uh, and to sort of understand those resonances and how there is a sort of cyclical nature to shared all of form. these things. And it's a shared form. Sharing form. form. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> the title in Mary is great. But, but also the sense that, um, you know, there, there are these kind of really powerful forms that we do internalise, whether we realise it or not. And that those are the forms that keep recurring throughout history, that mankind keep kind of returning to. Like and a sub subconscious figurative form, yeah. you mean? Like you just recognise... I would say not necessarily figurative. 
Right. I think, you know, we think of, we navigate the world through our bodies. Yeah. We, as Mary was sort of describing that idea of, you know, the distance between me yeah. and you, or as a child, you learn what is hard and soft by bumping into things. Yes. Or, you know, those sort of experiences that help us to kind of understand this sort of form awareness and spatial awareness. But I think that what Moore was learning from Stonehenge, which was the sort of starting point of the exhibition here, and, um, you know, sort of, felt very relevant being in Somerset where it's not so far away to then have that sort of continuation of those themes was that actually Stonehenge was um, essentially an abstract artwork there yeah. in Neolithic time mm. and yet a very powerful kind of human expression you know mm. it's man-made those stones have been carved and shaped you can see the evidence of the working on the stone and that is what I think more kind of felt when he saw it he felt he saw it as a work of art not necessarily overly interested in its sort of um, ritual function or whatever the latest kind of um, uh, archaeological investigations were finding at the time but but it's but also that interaction with people. You know, this was a, a, an artwork that people used, um, experienced, inhabited, you know, walked into that stone mm. circle and around. And, and, and that is what um, we're trying to encourage people to do in this show. So that um, curatorially, um, we have pulled everything off the wall, but we've also been quite keen not to make everything absolutely obvious when you first walk in through the door. Mm. You know, so you do discover form as you walk around you do see the backs of sculpture but you may not even see all of the sculpture from from the doorway sort of thing that's mm. kind of quite you still important. have to discover it as you walk through yeah you do I, I really like the fact as well that there's natural light in the space in this first like barn that we're in mm -hmm. and also the the natural way that the walls are you know the architects mm. obviously done these amazing bricks that have, have, have revealed mm. but i think um that idea of being in the uh stones today at the um stonehenge in the landscape. um when you actually see the trees you see the sheep you see you see the world around you in a new mm. way like mm. not just framed but it's kind of like a window through or something and i really like that in this room in yeah. the way that you can actually look outside and that somehow is interacting with mm. with these totems it, it's as though stonehenge mediates between you and the land yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to mention Stonehenge a lot because Stonehenge <laughs> I has might been... not mention it. <laughs> you might not. <laughs> we will. <laughs> you, can, you can avoid the questioning. But it, it's something that has inspired this exhibition that's happening now. And a lot of the things we're seeing in this exhibition, have they been shown on such a level before when it comes to the Stonehenge influences? I don't think we've had a show that's sort of so um, focused on that connection before. Mm. Um, I would say that it is a starting point. It's a, it's a sort of um, launch pad through which we can think about... It's a doorway. Yeah. It's a very easy doorway for people who might have thought, oh, God, I don't want to see an abstract sculpture. I don't want to see a sculpture. You know, but, but yes, I know Stonehenge, and it's to do with England, and I understand what it is. Mm -hmm. And so they come, and then through that, you you start to have an introduction or you start to have a... Um, an openness to what you're being shown as well because you've said, you know, mm. because it's Stonehenge in a way. Yeah. Also, I think it, it reveals 
about his thinking and the way that he would passionately investigate yeah. different phenomena, different artworks, different histories. And it's not just his work is not all obviously about Stonehenge at all, but it's it's one of just these one moments. One of many. Yeah. And then you begin to understand him as yeah. an artist. It's a really fascinating um, point, actually. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about what we're looking at in this room then okay. for everybody listening. So th- there's four totemic um, sculptures yeah. that are, you know, this is quite a high room or in like a barn. And the scale-wise, which is very important to Moore, really is being shown off here at its full effect. Yeah, I think this was about scale. And you've just come in from outside and you've walked through that arch that yes. you, um, you experienced. And you're starting to kind of understand this sense of inhabiting the same space as sculpture. I think what's really nice in this um, gallery as well is, is, that, is the grouping of these so that they do something individually on their own as individual works of art but they are also um there is something reverberating almost between them and they're they are all different scales um and then you know he made this series of upright motors he made sort of 10 or so maquettes um in the sort of mid to late 50s and um had originally done so thinking of um, this, uh, he was working with an architect called Michael Rosenauer at the time, and he was thinking about these for an architectural project that um, was for the English electrical headquarters, and it was a very modernist, horizontal axis building, and he was looking at these upright, kind of how to break that horizontal mm. rhythm. If, if I'm right, he saw project. a tree he behind did. the yeah. building, and he thought, okay... Uh, you know, why not do an upright form? Because it wasn't his normal... Normally, it, it was. It, this is a kind of aberration from mm. his normal work, in a way. Mm. And they're quite, you know, they're quite different. And, you know, th- not all of them, you know, find their final kind of realisation. And the architectural project was kind of... Well, Moore's work for it was abandoned. However... Was it? Yeah, that never came to pass. So they remained um, as maquettes and... They, well, some of them were obviously, right. um, uh, you know, enlarged and cast in their own right, as sculptures in their own right, but not associated with that project. And that's very much like the and, way Moore worked. And he started to group them. Yes. And, and he put three of them... As he grouped them, he suddenly found that possibly by grouping three together, it was reminiscent of Calvary because he found that he'd made one of the central uprights with a little, a little bit like a cross, but not. So, so he, he mm. chained, moved them around and used them in different ways. And eventually, I think three of them, did they not end up in then Scotland. in yeah. Scotland, yeah. sort of in a very rugged landscape? Yeah. So, so even though they didn't end up in this building, they ended up with a different, a different destination. Wow. And I think it's really nice because some of them do take on this quite figurative element. Others, as Mary says, they kind of look more cruciform. Mm. So you have those kind of recollections almost of, um, you know, Celtic cruciforms or, or ancient monoliths. Some of them have more organic kind of feeling about them. You can sense more building up this one, I think, in particular. And, and it becomes really apparent when we um, go into the pigsty yes. gallery how, you know, there's... Uh, a walnut shell that's been pressed into the bottom of this. There's been tools sort of punched in to make these different holes. There's a sense in this exhibition entirely, not just of our appreciating the sort of full-scale sculptures we're anymore, but thinking about how he learned about form and the world. Or how he used how he form used and it. combined it. I mean, mm. if you think of it like music 
with different uh, harmonies or different refrains or different juxtapositions. Mm. You see his use of these different things coming back in different ways, yeah. saying different things. Well, there's like a major minor key. Yeah, major all minor key. Yeah, all, of, all, very of, satisfying all of those, all, exactly, yeah. all of those things. There's a sense hear. of like him pressing into yeah. the sort of soft material and yet it's this sort of bronze kind of... Um, form and yet you know it sort of taps into a kind of um, yeah. form knowledge that yeah. he's yeah. certainly got and that we're encouraging yeah. people to kind of develop and as you move around you might see something more organic in a tree-like element you yeah. might see oh, on yeah. another one um, a sort of a mechanical element so right. there are elements that look like they've been cast almost out of artillery shells or you know and this combination this juxtaposition of yeah. hard and soft or natural and unnatural in a way or you know organic and mechanical is is very um is what Moore does so well he kind of understands the power in in uniting those different kind of I, modes I, I saw an amazing photograph of Henry in his studio with shelves that had all natural yes. objects on when like we, stones when we when we get to my um little installation in the pigsty where I've chosen a few yeah. things from his maquette oh, studio. Oh, great. Oh, cool. So, uh, which start with these very small works, which, I mean, you know, he worked at this size. Yeah, yeah. And, but he had this uh, tremendous understanding of scale mm. uh, and volume, um, partly because uh, he developed it, I guess. Mm. But and that could have been born... from Stonehenge as well, though. Yes, mm. but, but also as a child in Yorkshire, in Castlewood, there were these huge slag tips that were like sort of pyramids and they were enormous but he also went into um, these caves in the sand rock without light they would go with a little match it was a game and the boy and they would he would go in as a small child and in this dark in, in, enclosed in darkness he could feel an inner space so I think he had a real understanding of inner space as well as sort of you know monumental visual space. I think it just was something he was exposed to and that was probably in him and he developed it. You know, you don't really consider the interiority of a Henry Moore. No, no, no. I was right. amazed when I heard this and it made me understand a tremendous amount about why he put why he under, uh, put holes in things yeah. and felt that space was as the volume of the space is as important as the mm. volume of the solid yeah. and the two balance each other and that's the way we see things you know um, but also I think it was just inculcated possibly by experiences like that where he was like in this huge inner cave well I look at I mean I look at the, the arch that's outside and to me that feels so like bone-like, as if you're yes. looking at the like the the hip yeah. bones and, yeah. and what's missing. It is a missing. hip bone. It is. It is the hip bone. Yeah. Right. It is kind of a hip. But bone. it makes you imagine what's missing from that area of the body. Yeah, what exactly. would normally be there yeah. and. Mm. But it is interesting as a as such a large work that it actually incorporates so much space, and the space becomes. Uh, a tangible material yeah, yeah. for more sculpture, you know. So you it sculpts are in, the air, doesn't and it? Yeah, you know. And as you go round it, the shape of the space changes. Yes. Yeah. So not only does the form change, but this the space. The form of the space changes. When we were stood under it, I actually started to see a face. And I was like, <laughs> well, no, it was like, it's a, figurate, yeah. a figurative element. It yeah. really freaked me out, though. I was like, no, we were looking up. But, and I, but I think that happens in nature, doesn't it? Yes. It happens if you're in a cave or it happens if you're... Or if you look, look at, at a tree. A tree, a tree yeah. or a cloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
Yeah. No, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> you know, there's something that really struck me as well. Um, these bronzes, mm-hmm. um, he was using like a lost wax process, wasn't he? Uh, in, in the what? early days of making the bronzes, is that right? Most of the large bronzes are sand cast oh, okay. rather than um, through the lost wax. But um, the way that he is sort of, uh, made, and, it, and he was working with professional foundries um, yeah, yeah. by the time he's casting these, he did do a lot of casting experiments in the back garden. We had a foundry. Um, they had a mini foundry. Seven, they decided yeah. to make a foundry in the garden because he'd actually made some of his sculpture in lead from my mm. mother's saucepans. He'd melted really? it. He'd melted the did lead. Did she on know? The Was she <laughs> aware? Okay. But I mean, lead has a very low melting thing, so mm. you can cast things in lead. That was the lost wax. You know, right. so you can. Yes. But we had a bronze foundry, and they had these enormous bellows. Yes. From the blacksmith, and they made um, they made a mother and child, which mm. has which had a kind of beak, mm. uh, where the child has a kind of teeth. And because they, it was a very rough cast, the teeth came out with very sharp edges. So it's like, yeah, aggressive. Yeah. That's an aggressive <laughs> t- a toddler, yeah. is it? That's uh, teething. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we're now moving into the second room, and here we have Stonehenge. You do. It's really omnipresent in this room. <laughs> we're looking at a whole suite of, are these lithographs? Yeah, yeah. So all along this wall um, and most of the way around the gallery are Moore's lithographs um, that he made 50 years after this very first visit that he had to Stonehenge in 1921 when um, he'd just kind of come down to London he'd to study at the Royal College of Art and um, he was sort of so excited to see Stonehenge. Stonehenge had very recently, I think a couple of years before, been acquired by the nation. There was a lot of archaeological interest and things were being discovered. It was in the news. And so it was kind of there in both the popular imagination, but also in um, the artistic imagination. And of course, it's a site that's been depicted in art for, you know, since the Middle Ages. And had this quite romantic kind of idea. But for more, I think it wasn't so much about sort of picturing Stonehenge. It was about internalising that sensation of being at Stonehenge that was really important. And it may have been, I don't know, but I mean, he read a lot. He read all the novels. And in Thomas Hardy, and I know he read Hardy, you'll remember the end of Tessa the... You might not remember the end of the Tessa... You might have to remind us. You might well not remember the end of Tessa the Turbervilles. But Tess ends up on Salisbury Plain at night being chased by the police because she's murdered her, this man who uh, betrayed her. And um, she's heading, she's this, you know, they're running ahead of the police and they get to Salisbury Plain and it's getting dark mm-hmm. and they find their way to Stonehenge and by her simply feeling these rocks, you, you realise she's at Stonehenge and she lies down to sleep on one of the, one of the rocks. Um, and then in the morning, the sun comes up, and you see that it's Stonehenge, and Stonehenge is revealed. And at that moment, the um, police are kind of coming across the, the you know, the plain. To... So I, I'm not, I have no doubt that in public imagination and my mm. father's imagination, because he loved Hardy, Stonehenge had this had this kind of mystery, this kind of huge mm. monument. A mythology to yeah, it, which also plays into his work. Yeah, it's like exactly. that's something that's inspired yeah. him. But also the first time he went to see it, he got a train and arrived at night time. Yeah. And he actually walked yeah. like four miles or something yeah, to he, get he, there at night. He couldn't wait till he the morning. Wait. Couldn't wait till the morning. I love that though. Um, yeah. That passion, that, that strength yeah. of character, it's just so inspiring. And But this is, I mean, and so this uh, series of lithographs, with its, I mean, he talks about that experience of seeing first ever 
sort of visit to Stonehenge, seeing it by moonlight mm-hmm. and what moonlight does. So it kind of enhanced this sense of the depths and the distances. It says um, it makes everything larger. Yeah, he said really? it enlarges. Yeah. There's a shadowing, I yeah, guess. The yeah, the moonlight makes everything larger. Yeah. And he talks about these towering <laughs> stones, you know, in the moonlight. And I think that even though these lithographs were made kind of 50 years later, it really retains that sense of that very powerful first impression. Um, and, you know, the, even the medium of lithography, because um, he started the series in etching. We show two of the etchings um, behind you. But he felt that lithography, which is a, a way of making prints that you use stone, use a stone plate and a kind of greasy um, chalk, yes. um, really gives you that intensity of colour. The blackness here is really important, mm. especially as the series kind of develops and you get that sense of zooming in and zooming out onto these kind of... Yeah, um, micro-macro feel. Yeah. So we, uh, this is a little bonus. Um, We have managed to get up at 4.30am in Somerset and we've driven to Stonehenge and we're now actually standing in the middle of the stones of Stonehenge. Uh, We saw the sun come up um, and we did it as a sort of pilgrimage for Henry Moore in 1921 when he came here as a student when he couldn't wait till the morning he got up and he walked here how many miles was it Rob? I think it was four miles and he got off the train and he was so excited to see it that he walked here at night time and actually saw Stonehenge in moonlight which is effectively kind of almost what we did mm. we've actually seen it with the sunrise but it's so beautiful and you can hear all the birds there's even two little blackbirds like um, nesting in one of the stones it's really cute it's really cute (laughs) (laughs) and we're just no we're having a it's a pretty amazing experience i think they allow 30 people every morning to come and do this so um it feels very like once in a lifetime experience but i think everybody can do this if you have the tenacity to get up that early and come here and book it book beforehand but it's um it's magic it's absolutely magic it's incredible as well because you can see with the sunlight as the sun rises the long shadows that are created and all the different angles and also you can really feel the textures and um the kind of uh, lichen and moss that's growing on the stones and how that impacted henry's um work it's really really cool actually to get this close to all the stones um We'll post pictures on our Instagram. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to um, Hedwig and James at BMW Group Culture who actually got up with us and drove us here this morning in the um, I-7. It was magic. Lots of love. Did he have a hierarchy when it came to his practice between sculpture and drawing? They both feel vitally important. You're absolutely right. I think, I think, I mean, he knew he was a sculptor, but to him, drawing was a vital part of, of seeing things, understanding form, and he loved drawing. And mm. when he couldn't get the stone or he couldn't get, you know, during the war, or it, he did incredible amounts of drawings mm. because that's um, what he could get. And all his drawings are very three-dimensional. Mm. So he's exploring three-dimensionality. Yes, he, he used both. Yeah, he took <laughs> and he archived everything very well. Like he was an incredible stuff. archiver. Did he throw stuff away? Did he destroy yes, sculptures? He did say that he and my mother sometimes sat down and tore up loads <gasps> of drawings. And he was, and I remember him saying, you know, we probably went a bit far at that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what about the sculptures? Would he no, ever be like this? I don't know. Sculptures have been lost. There sculptures are a few have been destroyed. Yeah, there are a few lost. Maybe one or two destroyed yeah. in the early years. But I think 
the majority, you know, maybe lost through accident rather than a deliberate, you know, I yeah. don't, you know. Yeah. Someone oh, tripping it, over. <laughs> you know, there seemed a very practical sense to more. So those lead sculptures, for example, were quite soft. Mm. Um, and I know that a few of the le- early leads have, have gone missing. And a lot of uh, assistants have told me, he probably threw it back in the pan and made something else, you know, because there was this, you know, it was precious. Um, and you would just kind of practically remake something, you know. Or it went in someone's pocket. Well, there's always... <laughs> or your mum took it back and went, I'll have that. That was my saucepans. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I love about the lithographs is how kind of spiritual they are in some way. There's a real, like, sensitivity and um, soulfulness, but maybe sensuality to it. Like, it's you can fleshy. Really, they're fleshy, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, but you can really, like, yeah. feel feel that that stone somehow yeah through a 2d yes. image which is just extraordinary it is it is interesting that you know because you mentioned figurative earlier and actually some of the stones then become sort of slightly mm. figurative in some ways and yet Crowds, not overtly so, yeah. you know we've we've kind of in many ways we've avoided some of the most obvious figurative subjects that Moore is so well known for sure. Sure. in this show that? well because it, this is a great opportunity to actually showcase some of the, the sort of more abstract ideas that mm. Moore had. Um, and I think that Stonehenge kind of gave us license in a way to do that. Right. Um, but also, I mean, I would caveat that by saying Moore, I don't think, is ever entirely abstract. There's always something that pulls you back, whether it's to an organic form like a, a stone or a pebble or a bone. Um, I mean, the works in this room, the the carvings in this room are probably those from among, amongst his most abstract period in the 1930s, oh. where um, those lessons from, from Stonehenge relate not so much in a kind of pictorial way, but in um, thinking about stone, thinking about native British stones a lot of the time, yes. thinking about, as Mary talked about earlier, this kind of idea of direct carving and truth to material and letting the properties of the stone dictate the form um, itself. Got it. And a lot of the works that we're seeing in this exhibition, now this is a huge survey, are these things that people might not have seen because they're part of the Foundation's collection or their private collections? Because this is more of a museum show than, because we are in a commercial gallery, yeah. but this isn't a commercial exhibition, this is more a museum kind of retrospective. Yeah, I mean the Henry Moore Foundation's collection is kind of often on tour you know we do have kind of multiple exhibitions um not so much during the pandemic um but that we have toured around but this is quite unique this is one probably our first major show since the pandemic where we've been able to show everything from the kind of 30s right through to the 80s across five galleries and outdoors and in multiple you know we've got works on paper we've got carvings we've got um, bronzes, you've got yeah. beautiful little maquettes. But, but you also have, um, show, you have works on show constantly at the foundation. We do, at Moore's yeah. Home and in his studios. I mean, it's not all locked up in cases in, in you know, in a storage. No, you space. can come but and visit us. From the founda- this is the yeah. foundation's yeah. yes. collection. It, it's ninety nine percent the foundation's collection. Got it. Yeah. And is it is it free to get into the foundation? It isn't. <laughs> so how much is it to go in? Does that have interest? Do you know? No. Because there's two worry. locations, isn't there? There's the studio. And gardens, and then yeah. there's the foundations. There's one in Leeds, and there's one in Hertfordshire. Yeah, so we're the same foundation, and we oh. have um, the sort of uh, where Henry Moore lived, where Mary yes. lived. The home, is the, the, his house, his studios, the ground, because he had like 70 acres, and he would put his sculpture yeah. in the grounds in order to kind of ena- enable size or understand size. So when we made the foundation, all of that, we gave it away. We gave everything away, and the buildings and everything. And um, so the one in Hertfordshire is 
that's the, the sort of headquarters. It's the home, <laughs> it's the home of Hall. But the one yeah. in, in Leeds is an institute which studies sculpture and which is connected to the Leeds City Art Gallery mm. and which, mm. which sort of is connected with explorations into modern artists of, of many yeah. types. I mean, I think the, the Leeds programme is kind of focusing on sculpture in its widest possible sense. Um, and the studios and gardens are the home of Henry Moore and they are that is the experience yeah. so if you want to see what how Henry Moore worked where he lived that is the place yeah. to come so cool mm. when did you know Mary you wanted to dedicate your life to your I, your dad's practice and, I didn't, and to... really I, I mean I never knew I didn't really want to dedicate my life to him I mean that's that's why we made the foundation but in a way um I just felt he... I do care passionately about the sculpture. I do care passionately that people enjoy it and that people look at it and get pleasure from it and kind of review it and think about it. And I think, you know, he was the only what sculptor who took the human body and put the human body in the landscape and landscape in the human body. And I think that, that, it, that for people to... Uh, particularly after Van Den when we all became much closer to kind of landscape and water and trees and mountains. I think, I think it's something that we can revisit and see that it has something to say to, say to us. Um, you know, um, can't help it. Do you live with his work? <laughs> Do you have his work in your house? I have, uh, no, no. No? No, we didn't really. No, there is one little piece here that I might like to borrow from them. But you don't live with work anyway at home. You don't. No, have... no, I have. I don't think I have his. I mean, we didn't really have his work in the house. We. I mean, I grew up when I was very young. He just. It was just after the war, and he'd, he'd made a lot of textiles. Right. Because England. I mean, they had the Festival of Britain, and England was trying to build up a textile industry, and it had horses, and it had. All kind, and it had artists, many artists designed textiles. And so our house was, all the curtains in our house, all the bedspreads in our house, my mother even, we were all dressed in Henry Moore textiles. <gasps> so, so it sort of grew up, I know. Do they exist? Do they? Yes, yeah. they do exist. But the trouble is they don't exist. There's not, an, I wish I had reams. There's not an endless, uh, you know, <laughs> There's not an endless supply. supply yeah. So um, You need to get a high street like Uniqlo or something <laughs> yes, exactly. to collaborate. H&M <laughs> yeah, to yes, jump exactly. off. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so should we move through? So yes. In this room, there are four, five uh, vitrines with mm -hmm. sculptures in, and these are, you're saying, his most abstract. These are these early carvings from the 1930s where there is this kind of compactness. They're, you know, they're stone. This is at the height of more thinking about, um, you know, this truth to material, the direct carving, letting those forms emerge, if you like, from the stone. Mm -hmm. He's also working outside a lot. So um, at this in fact, he, worked, he carved outside. Yeah. I mean, he even carved outside when I was growing up. What, like in the winter? Yes, possibly. You know, they, they can't, he worked outside all day long, you know. Mm. So he was working in natural light, which is not unlike the way that Stonehenge was made. Mm -hmm. And not unlike the way that carvers and artists and through millennia, you know, right back to Paleolithic man, they, those artists worked outside. So he had a kind of connection with the changing of light, morning to night, winter to summer, just the way light changes. So yes, he mm. worked outside. Even when I was growing up, he was carving outside. There's got to be some correlation because he's a son of a miner and there's something about mining where you're carving into a wall constantly 
mining, chipping away. Yeah. That that sort of energy... Well, he did do mining drawings, and when he mm. went up to do these mining drawings, he kind of hated it when he first went down inside this pit. He hated it, but then after a day or so, he got used to it, you know, mm-hmm. but he found it very difficult working just in the dark, and so the only light in those drawings is often a miner's lamp, lamp yeah. or a lamp on a horse mm. Or, mm. or those kind of things. It's kind of inversion, in a way, yeah. of the Stonehenge. Yeah. Uh, you know where you've um, there's limited light yeah, where the dark, just like he's where made the, these at where the, dusk where the light mm. yes I mean yeah when I was growing up in the 80s um I remember my mum telling me about Henry Moore and how much she loved his work. And for me, it was like he was accepted as one of the greats of our you know, yeah. time and one of our great kind of British artists, which obviously he is. Mm-hmm. But I was really fascinated to hear that when he was um, a student and um, you know, beginning his career, he wasn't just immediately accepted. He had to really sort of fight his corner because there was a lot of criticism and a lot of um, people who were anti his yes. position, actually. The Royal Academy, and particularly Munnings, I'm from Munnings, I mean, they said, oh, this man is dejected. He's, dis- yeah. he's, he's undermining, you know, the purity of our youth and this shouldn't be seen, there are aberrations there. Mm. You know, this is, this is ugly, this is terrible, you know. Yeah. He left a post, didn't he, his job at the Royal College? <laughs> yeah, the Royal College of Art, did, I mean, I yes. think even they were worried that he was going to sort of pollute the minds of the young students somehow with his work and he quite quickly got another job at yes. uh, Chelsea College of Art it instead. Really excites me but to think that he... He's able to kind rebel, of, yeah, yeah, and he's pushing things forward. And in order to change art, mm. you have to have that boldness and bravery and belief in yes. pushing things forward. But what's so fascinating is his connection to ancient history. Yeah, you know, it's, yes. it's, it wasn't then like now, uneducated. Yes, or, it's totally like incredible in a way yeah. that his, his knowledge of yeah. what what came before him. Yeah. But I love this idea of modernness and like somehow creating new form like it just blew my mind I I think that's exactly right though about Stonehenge so when more um, visits it and and others follow and you you know there's a whole group of artists there that that do think about not just Stonehenge but other sort of um, prehistoric sites um, as a sort of justification for the way that they are thinking and working at the time so that this is not novel or inhuman it's actually very human it's talking about a sort of ancient kind of tradition and um, modes of expression that have existed for millennia and that are just sort of cyclical in the way that they come round again and now there is another moment for abstraction in a way that, it, you know, figurative works also come round. Mm. And, Particularly post-war you know. as well, like yes. after World War One, yes. Yeah. Like the return to that and to, to the, the power of abstraction. Yeah, I think it's really and important and it was sort of... Um, you know, universal. It sort of took away some of that political idea of boundary. You know, they exist in Brittany and France in the same way, you know, as they do on Salisbury Plain. Well, and there's these, still that you know, wonderful exhibition at the British Museum yeah. about Stonehenge, I think. It and how months. connected it is yes. to the world and mm-hmm. world traditions, mm-hmm. which links beautifully to okay. Mary's case. So, so this is the ring so, you curated. So this, this room, I just tried, I put in this case things from the house and things from the studio. So, and it also tries to demonstrate a little bit the artist's process. So you will start to uh, record. Okay, so here we see the plaster maquettes for some of those oh, upright wow. motives that you, saw, that you saw in the first room. And you also see the little maquette for the arch. Yeah. And you can see how very different the proportions are mm. in, the, in that it's yeah. the, 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 the kind of hip bit, the kind of bone yeah. bit dominates um, mm. dominates it. But when 
he made an intermediary model that was about eight foot high before he made the really large one, and he felt that the eight foot high one wasn't high enough. And in enlarging things, you have to change proportions. So I think he was really thrilled by the, the arch. Um, and the arch that's outside is fiberglass. Yes. And Russell was really blown away because he, was, <sighs> he said, like, it's such a contemporary thing, yes. a fiberglass. Good old fiberglass. Yeah, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's an original work from yes. the 60s. It's exciting, yes. 60s, in, yes. Um, so these little clay um, maquettes, he was sort of playing with these ideas of you know, building up these totem poles. And he, you can see he uh, pierces little holes. That one is, in fact, a maquette for this bird table. Oh, wow. We, we had in the garden a bird table because my parents loved to feed birds at breakfast. So the one that he made for the garden was, in fact, made of terracotta, but this concrete one is mine. And um, it's, uh, he could tie coconuts on it. Uh, I'll show you shortly. Yes. And birds w- could walk around it. The... The other things in this case so show a kind of process because um, maybe we should go round to the other side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, for instance, he, he would take his tools and you can see there's a... Um, uh, Cheese grater. Yes, but also a kind of rasp. It's a wood rasp. And yeah. he's pressed in the wood rasp into the clay. And you can see the pattern of it there. And oh, yeah. these, these are imprints of old locks and and also tools that he's just made a pattern of. Um, so he started to work on these wall reliefs because he was working on a wall that was going to be made in bricks in um, Rotterdam. But in these, he's playing with little sculptures that he's made that he's pressed into clay and then cast in plaster. But also there are th- in the house, we had a sort of collection of every kind of as well as natural objects. I mean, that's a little face that he's made from a bone by just putting two little eyes in it. it and um, this is a three-piece reclining figure where it's, it's mostly stone, but he's just sort of emphasised the human form of the first part. And he never turned this one into a large mm-hmm. sculpture. And this is the bronze... Um, well, it's not really a maquette. It's a working model for the huge stone um, time-life relief, which is at the top of... It's in Bond Street, and it's on the Time Life building, and if you ever go to... Oh, on New Bond Street. In New Bond Street, and you look yes. up, sort of... Opposite you know, Burberry, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yes. Hermes is at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, But they were never able to turn the pieces. He made the pieces. But through. it was meant to spin, yes, was it? Yes, it was meant to turn so that you could see through it, but there wasn't a... And this is the piece that he carved, um, you know, in our front yard. I actually went on a date once with somebody. <laughs> Did and you? He said to me, "Look up." Yeah. And he showed me, yeah. and I didn't know it was there. No, it's and yeah. it really impressed me. And I was like, "That's so cool." So he had often, you know, natural objects which were like a kind of vocabulary or an, uh, an a lot of shells and stones. Of shells yeah. and stones and things that he found, but also we've mixed it in with uh, this sort of Inuit. Um, whalebone figure and tiny little things and a coco de mer and this what's a coco de mer coco de mer it's kind of coconut but it's it's unlike the normal coconut in that i think it has that many loaves they were very popular in victorian times as part of the what you would put in your house I just thought it was a brand, <laughs> Coco de Mer. I didn't realise it was actually a, a real exactly. thing. It does. This is an oceanic, Pacific um, wow. oh, wow. sort of mask. Um, but round here you can see some of the little um, sculptures that he made um, to hold in the hand. And he must have always been doing something. He was always doing something. And he would work on a table and just make this size, size of 
relief. But I find this one very moving and the one around the corner in that um, he often, this is like a tree yeah. talking, but it's kind of humanized tree, uh-huh. talking to this, um, in conversation with this rather broken seated figure. And he humanized the tree and they both look as though so they've survived a rather difficult time. And, they've got um, through it, haven't they? They're a bit <laughs> relieved. Got through it, yeah. but they're also still standing, and, and that's the tree, little tree root that is part of that tree, but inverted, wow. I think he used that. So we're looking at so many materials here. We've got, like, brass, bronze, yeah. bone, yes. clay. This is a bronze um, maquette for something called hill arches, which actually is... The final one is mm. as big almost as this room. Mm. Wow. But it's a very, it's a very jewel-like in that, in that sort of way. It has an enormous kind, of, and they're like the little ribs of a rat or a marsupial. I mean, if you look at the, 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 the rib shape, or mm. they're like wishbones, really, mm. aren't they? Put together with a little mm. ball, but they, they form a. It's um, a big rat. A that one, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what out of all the materials then? What what? did he go to most? What was his most favourite? Well, he modelled, he modelled in clay and then he started to model in plaster by, I mean, to begin with stone. Stone was his favourite, he said he loved the act of carving. It was probably rather, you know, it was rather kind of, and he liked that. Yeah. And um, he discovered all the different English, um, what do you call them? Quarries. Oh, yeah. You're in there, quarries in Cumberland. There were quarry, he used every 20 or 50 kinds of different English stone. And he made. Uh, sort what, of, and he would turn up there and be like, and, hey, it's and, me and, again. And, yes, <laughs> and then he goes, give me a little bit of that stone. And so he really explored the properties of all the English stone. And I think wow. he enjoyed carving most. He could also carve wood very well. But then he went on to modeling and drawing. I think he was. He, he, enjoyed, ev- he enjoyed it all, you know, and each thing provide you do a different thing to get a different result so i mean you know stone uh, you you stone is a much more solid thing you you don't want to make a kind of uh, he didn't want to make a classical figure with hair with stone hair that looked like right you know, Rodin like, like, yeah, yeah. Or, yes or you know he did, wasn't into that kind of, use right. of stone. but you're absolutely right there are many 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 different um, materials here there is a correlation with Barbara Hepworth, and I know that Barbara Hepworth and him were in education yes, together. Yes, they were. She was, um, they were at the same art school. Yes. I think Barbara Hepworth's mother didn't really want her to go out with a working-class boy like Henry. I know that there was a bit of, yeah. Were they dating? No, they weren't dating, but they knew each other. But I know there was a little concern about, you know, because... Class, a class, class sister. Uh, right. a sister. Oh, how fascinating. But, no, but I remember meeting Barbara Hepworth and, and they had, uh, my father lived in a studio which was sort of next to Barbara and Ben's studios and they all knew each other and went on holiday. Ben Nicholson, this Ben is. Nicholson, yeah. you know. So they were all a group of friends who who talked and discussed art and lived art, you know, all, all the time. And they actually all moved to Hampstead at one point, yes, didn't they? There was like a group of artists. Lived, yes, yeah. and I think it was called a sort of nest of... Yeah, I think oh, yes, that's, that's right. Herbert yes, Reed's term, yes, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. What was is that, a nest of what? Gentle artists. Gentle a nest artists, of gentle yes. artists, yeah. But I think they, you know, so they were able to have this conversation. And, and actually, their, their friendship was um, also a kind of friendly rivalry. Yes, I guess yeah. they kind of all helped push each other forward yes, yes. through their own in, and, investigations and, and, and discoveries.
discovered. And then as they got older, they went their own ways and had their own homes and studios and didn't see each other so much. Right, right, right. I think it's really important as well in that nest of gentle artists that there, there was um, a lot of European emigres that yeah. were coming in, you know, people like Walter Gropius and Nam Garbo and so yeah. on, who, you know, given the emerging situation Marcel on Breuer, the... Con- yeah, there, yeah, yeah. Oh, you've got, got a list. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the critic um, Herbert Reed. Yeah, exactly. Very close friend, ah. yeah, of Moore's. And um, oh god, I've got to go. Oh, so well, listen. Thank you so much. Can we just have a quick goodbye? Sorry. When can I, when can I listen to? It will be out very soon. Yes, yeah. but thank, thank you so so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we're gonna have double double sound. Thank you so much, Mary. So Mary's just gone because we are. We've just been so lucky to snatch her time here at House Rimworth because uh, her family's here visiting. The show opens tomorrow. You've been installing together, I guess, so, for a long time now. So yeah. we've lost Mary Moore, but we've still got you, Hannah. <laughs> Thank you. So let's. And we're, now, we're now stood outside in the yeah. beautiful courtyard, and there's actually one of Henry's sculptures right there. It's a smaller one this time. There's two. Oh, there's two. Yeah, oh, yes, there's two. Uh, wow. So quite a deliberate contrast in the in the scales and the sizes and the. And the forms, you know, so this is a work called Divided Over Butterfly, which is this, you know, as the title suggests, it's kind of like almost a kind of pregnant, kind of bulbous Mm. form, really sort of uh, ready to kind of burst forth. Um, Actually, probably um, shape-wise derived from uh, a pelvic uh, bone of a cow. The pelvis appears a lot of animals. Like we've had the rat pelvis, we've had the pelvis outside a cow pelvis. It's like... And yeah. that, the anatomy, I guess he was well, like... Bones were... Re- he loved bones because he talks about bones as this really strong structure that supports life, that supports our bodies, mm. that we have them and we can relate um, to the world through them, but also that they can be very lightweight and yet very strong and they have this wonderful um, structural well, kind though, of yeah. potential. So bones were... were uh, consistently kind of used by more um, in the way that he thinks about sculpture. So we're looking at these sculptures outside. Now, a lot of people would see Henry Moore's maybe peripherally or maybe they've made a point of finding them mm. in the landscape, outside, mm-hmm. in public domain, public mm-hmm. artwork. You see a lot of Henry Moore. Yeah. What does What comes with that, the pressures of that, having to maintain that? Because, you know, some people might not respect him as much as they should. No. Who, who's like looking after that sort of work that's out there in the public domain? Uh, well, the Henry Moore Foundation have quite a lot of work out there in the public domain and we obviously kind of um, look after those and we bring them back in after a few years and um, take care of them and maybe move them around. Others are, you know, have been there since they were um, gifted to that place by Henry Moore. So, you know, there's a lot of work that went... Um, well, quite famously recently, of course, you had the drape-seated uh, drape figure Old Flow um, in the east end of London um, that Moore made uh, in the 50s for the Stifford housing estate, um, which no longer exists, which was demolished. And so what happens to these sculptures? And there was, you know, there's been a big debate about that. What um, happened to Old Flow? Where does she go? She's back there. She's now currently temporarily residing um, in Canary Wharf while they build the new um, uh, town hall or something in Whitechapel. Um, and then she'll go there so um, these sculptures have a life but what's important is that they create a sense of place so you know and and also for more you know he's instrumental um, in that post-war period 
in thinking about the regeneration of Britain, the rebuilding of Britain, mm. um, and the function that public sculpture can have in giving a sense of place. So there's a lot of new towns. Stevenage has a Henry Moore in the 1940s, Harlow. Um, uh, and these are not sculptures sited in grand civic squares in front of cathedrals. They're in housing estates, they're in schools, they're in hospitals. Yeah, exactly. And it's a really new and quite novel way at that time for thinking about what people need, actually, and in actually their public his, spaces. He was um, appointed an artist in the war, wasn't he? He was, to yeah. Like make work sort of about the war as like a record almost. But people say the work that he created is the greatest example of that kind of a project. Well, it was really interesting because I think initially, um, so Moore was one of the, uh, of several kind of artists that, um, Kenneth Clark, who was head of the War Artists Advisory Committee yeah. at the time, and knew Moore beforehand, had kind of said, oh, come on, do some um, drawings. And he struggled to find a subject initially. And he wasn't thinking, you know what, I, I'm not sure I want to do images of um, bombed out buildings and mm. so on. And there were other artists that were doing that. It was forward thinking. And then he, but then he hit upon the, um, the shelters and the London Underground. And he said, I saw in that image, like as he's going home one night on the tube, my reclining figures, you know, and he sees all these sleepers, blanket, shrouded, and for him it, it spoke of his reclining figures, it spoke of those early experiences of the tunnels that Mary was talking about, that sense of enclosure and, and space, and almost in some of those drawings they take on a kind of skeletal appearance, some of those figures. So that when he found his subject, which was such a fundamentally human subject, um, he he agreed that he would um, you know do more of these that he would um, give them to the War Artists Advisory Committee to um, take on tour around the country and, and a lot of them were given to uh, museums you know Manchester had them and other places around the the UK had them. Very to, generous. To sort of it feels like he's donated a lot of his own work to museums. Mm. I know the foundation supports mm. a lot of uh, institutions. Like, for example, they supported Sonia Boyce at the yes. Venice yes. Biennale for the yes. show that was realised. And congratulations, <laughs> Sonia One for Britain, yes. for Great Britain. But it feels like there has been a generosity of spirit throughout. Yeah, I think he was extremely generous in, with his time, as Mary was talking about earlier, and that importance for teaching. But I think... Also, you know, as she was saying, those quite humble beginnings, um, he was very lucky in that he had really forward-thinking teachers that, um, you know, he had a, a, an art teacher who was half French, so she was bringing him journals from France with the like, latest avant-garde <gasps> sculpture pictured. Yeah. And, you know, he was so, um, you know, but for another, you know, another teacher or another time or another... Plays, he might not have had these opportunities, but he recognised that that wasn't usual in Castleford, in Yorkshire, you know, at the turn of the mm. century. And so when he did have that, that means and that opportunity later in life to give something back, you know, that was what the foundation was about. That was sort of, you know, saying, I want to share this with everyone and I can set up 
um, the institute in Leeds and I can, um, you know, give these grants to aspiring young artists, emerging um, artists, and ha- let them have some of those opportunities that I had. Correct. And also, I just think his curiosity and inquisitive nature like lives mm. on, not just through the work, but also mm. in that support that he gives to other artists. Yeah. And you can imagine that he would be so excited to see mm. what new sculptors are making, what the next generation are doing. Yeah. He was always I, looking. He was. He was always looking. And I think, you know, it's interesting you were talking earlier about the sort of Moore's reputation in the 80s compared and his reputation in the 20s and so on when you know he was kind of hard to stomach by certain authority figures and then he almost becomes that authority figure and then people don't like that either and and actually there persistently in Henry Moore's career is this as you say curiosity but also this conversation with artists from all sort of um disciplines um even if that's not what he is kind of doing it doesn't mean that he doesn't you know he supports the acquisition he was a trustee at Tate um, uh, and he you know he supports the acquisition of some really interesting young sculptors coming through and so you know he's he's intellectually engaged and um, with a whole range of different work, even if that's not his own kind yeah, of personal brilliant. taste. So we're now in the largest gallery. It's a really expansive space. I've always loved coming. The Rhodes Gallery. I actually yeah. came recently to see Thomas J. Price's exhibition. Yeah. And it was just extraordinary. His giant yeah. um, sculptures. There's a, a language between Thomas J. Price and yeah. Henry Moore, mm, totally. isn't there? And it, you really feel that now, yeah. the kind of continuation. I'm sure Henry would have really respected Thomas. But um, can you talk a bit about the selection in this room and why? Yeah. And also, these works are heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's a boring question, <laughs> but are we talking cranes? Yes. And, yes. Yeah. Big cranes. Well, cranes for the outdoor works, and in here, you know, gantries and lots of Trolleys lifting equipment, and, and yeah. Many strong men. Uh, yes. Yes, we have. And women, possibly. I was Sorry. Going to yes. Say. People. Very strong people. Very yes. strong people. And so the first one here on yeah. the right. What What is this one made out of? Is this so this is actually a plaster, and quite interestingly, you're talking about weight. Sometimes it's the plasters that are actually heavier than the bronzes, because the bronzes are, of course, hollow, um, even though bronze is um, heavier. Whereas the um, the plasters were built up on these wooden armatures, which were then kind of um, built up often with the help of assistants, you know, dipping um, uh, bandage-type material into plaster, like it's called scrim, and draping it over and building Like when you break your arm. Yes, yes, exactly. We actually learned about scrim from Phila de Barlow. Oh, well, Another there you Another house of artist, yes. incredible, a sculptor, <laughs> yes. again, yeah. We both yeah. were obsessed with her sculptures, and she really revealed the scrim. You often see okay. it in the yes, work. Yes, you do, you she do. She titles the work with scrim in the title, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, say no more, I, will. I don't have to explain scrim. <laughs> <laughs> So this is, it's really good that you're pulling us around, Rob, because this is exactly what Moore wanted us to do with this sculpture. In fact, all his sculpture, you know, we cannot emphasize enough the importance of like moving around it and circling it, because this is a work that, you know, like all of them, he probably made in the palm of his hand, but it is um, a bony kind of abstract stony shape that he has then built up and created some sharp edges, some kind of bulbous edges, these points on which it um, sort of poises poised on points and he said of this work 
no, I, I want kind of um, people to sort of move around it. I want them to be able to walk away and not be able to draw it or remember what it looks like because it looks so different from every sort of angle. And this is, you know, he, he didn't want his work to sort of be understood immediately. You know, you don't want to walk up to a sculpture and go, I can see what that is. I know, okay, wow. done. And it I kind of keeps your mind that going, doesn't it? It explains so much when you see the lithographs where you see sculptures from every angle mm. drawn, the drawings. So actually he's revealing every angle of that sculpture yeah yeah and he's going in and he's kind of moving out and he's and he's interested and this is what happens here so we should go what's amazing about this one yeah quickly it's just scoring so i really want to get under it there yes you can see the light coming through a really small tiny shard of light yes just from the underneath the sculpture and it goes back to this sense of of the space being a tangible part of the sculpture Mm. right you know there's the, the you know the fact that the there is the space underneath you get that sense of three-dimensionality um, totally and also on these works I read a lot about his interest in the surface mm-hmm. and in the marks and mm-hmm. the hand and the fact that even when they're these giant sculptures he wanted that personal touch the artist is present yeah, yeah and to allow the spectator to feel a connection mm. to a sort of man-made mark yeah like you can see all these scratches it's almost like a game or something yeah like. I mean this is literally more kind of drawing on his yes. sculpture this is these hatched lines where he's and these sort of deeper gouges out of the sort of belly of this sculpture yeah. when and that when you get to the sort of edges you get the sort of sharper knife edge kind of smoothness that then kind of takes you round especially when you when this is cast in bronze that he's actually left this area purposefully very smooth and not kind of um, use these sort of hatched lines and yet and the inside space it's this variety of texture and form that's really important it's like a universal language somehow there's something about that hatched form it really reminds me of childhood like um, and also free imagination like Mm. almost like trying to free your mind as an adult like if you do like doodles or you do like sketches yes you You know what I mean don't think about it it's an autonomous kind of thing yeah and and just to also just kind of pick up on your enjoyment of that little void underneath it's in these two figures which are made of stone and you know again you see that sort of natural kind of texture that's coming through as well as the areas where he's smooth but it's in this one it's that slither of space that sort of the envelope that you get when those two figures sort of stand side by side and and it's and it's they reverberate and they they sort of talk to one another and it's it's something that you see in those maquettes in in the pigsty gallery um but here it's kind of writ large and you get that sense of of the sort of scale and the human proportions and, and being able to sort of meet those. And also um, like body language. Figures. Like if you mm. think about body language as like an unspoken thing again and a universal yeah. thing. But also with nature, because that could almost be a person talking to the tree again. or Ex- you know It, I mean? it is like, exactly that. It's yeah. that same sort of um, uh, language that Moore is kind of using. It kind of it only occurred to me because we started to put this show together before the pandemic and then we started to think about it again you know what how has that changed our way of thinking or oh, framing during the pandemic, and I was thinking yeah. gosh you know our sense of like we're all used to being two meters apart you know like and what does it mean like when you get close to someone and what happens in that little bit of personal space and how we feel it's about our personal space yeah. Yeah. yeah it is it's sort of ooh. And that's um, also interesting as a spectator like uh, sorry as a viewer uh, of an artwork like your subconscious must pick up on that almost frisson or that, or that energy field that you mm. might be yearning mm. for, or something. Mm. When you look at like a sculpture like that, when you've got the two yeah. together, yeah. Well, the energy is a funny thing. You should mention that because 
Um, Moore was really interested in, and this is, we're looking at a two-part sculpture here, which is a reclining figure, and it's called um, two-part reclining figure points. And it is um, a work where Moore has um, enlarged the figure to, to larger proportions than he might normally take the human figure. But he feels sort of the license to do so almost because he's abstracted it so much. So these look like kind of bolder formations from the landscape and very much do that thing that Mary was talking about of the, the, the body being landscape and landscape kind of being internalized in the body. But the points, um, there's several works that more makes with two points that never quite touch. It's like and it's the elect- Exactly. Yeah. He references Michelangelo's kind of Chapel. Sistine Chapel. He also talks about the spark plugs of cars and that electricity mm. that you get in the not quite well, touching. The touch, points. the not touching. It's, yeah, well, we've seen it all in Bridgerton, haven't we? It's, <laughs> it's like a whole series about not just about touching and the frisson in there. That's quite a soulful yeah. thing again. See, for me, there's a spirituality to do with nature yeah. within his work. It's not necessarily to any religious um, denomination or whatever. It's more like there's something quite soulful about being within nature and absolutely. Being calm. Can we also just, before we leave this room, mention the humour in Henry Moore's work because this figure has a face and it's literally like two eyes and a little nose yeah. it's so comical <laughs> yeah. it's so minimal yeah. and it's kind of like if you didn't notice it it's 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 like a little in joke that face to me yeah there's something I kind of find the fact that it's the sort flatness. of blunt as well it's sort of like yeah he's it's like a little worm or something yeah sort of, um, it was quite Picasso-esque almost cubist that yeah. sort of they yeah. were having the same for conversation for me it's a really soulful yeah. worm a soulful worm. It's a really a soulful, soulful worm. Worm. That's what we call you normally, don't we? That's when Quite someone says, describe Rob. Quite different worm. to this, actually, oh, then. Wow. You know, where you've got the single eye, which suddenly somehow... Alien-y um, or, or like yeah, a snail does, yeah. looking at. Yeah. This kind of makes me think of Brancusi for some reason. Or like, I don't know. Or this other is a much earlier well. work, actually. Oh, yeah, so this, um, this is another fiberglass cast of a standing figure. Um, but this is a, car- a fiberglass cast made later of a work that he actually produced in the um, 1950s. And it is quite angular and it is quite sort of bow-like and it's so much more in that period of the geometry of fear and the whole sort of Reg Butler and so on at the Venice Biennale again. Right. Well, so we're going into the final interior room now uh, and we're looking again. There's uh, two vit- three vitrines with incredible works and this is a series of works which I love and I know Rob loves called the Helmet Series. Yeah. And, and I know you've written show. about these. Yeah, and I love these. About about these. these. But these were inspired mm. by... And again, something we need to say a bit more is that he always cites his sources, as we said earlier. He always Mm. says, this is inspired by, this body of work comes from Mm. this experience. So he saw helmets like military or or, Mm. uh, uh, suits of Mm armour somewhere. What was the story behind that? So he he basically goes to the many, many museums in London as a student. He famously sort of spends every Wednesday in the British Museum. He absolutely loves the British Museum, learns a lot about all of those kind of different um, cultures and civilizations and that world art that we've seen come through in in, um, the Pigsty Gallery, he is equally fascinated by the armory at the Wallace Collection in London. And it's kind of interesting because, of course, upstairs in the Wallace Collection is this fabulous uh, uh, collection of Western European painting. And that's really not that interesting to Henry Moore. What he is fascinated by are these helmets. And they are helmets from, you know, different 
kind of places and different ages and eras, but they all, he recognizes them as a powerful sort of sculptural form and that it's not just about the kind of practical protection of, of somebody's head. They're decorated or they're kind of um, shaped to speak of power and authority and, um, and all I those kind of themes. That. When you see films of like war scenes mm. and you see them like hurtling towards either on a horse or running, you know, towards each other, there's something in the movement, the, the design of the, of the yeah. kind of helmet or the, you know what I mean? That, that, mm. that it's so scary and so powerful. Yeah, yeah. It kind of makes the opposition fear you. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something psychological within it as a sculptural form. It's really interesting that you talk about psychological. And because actually what Maud... So this is the very first kind of helmet head he does. And it's just called the helmet. And you can see that what he's taken from the helmet is not... You know, there is a general overall shape. But that what he's really interested in are the face openings of helmets. So it's not so much the sort of... He's not interested in the decoration of a helmet if somebody's got some kind of classical design on it. He's interested in um, this sense of... Um, the void within and he loves this idea of semi-obscurity and that you don't fully see everything but that also he populates his helmets which you see through these face openings um, with these internal figures and these internal figures can take on maybe our sense of um, you know our our psyche you know they're these kind of uh, figures of consciousness and they always look slightly timid and, and sort of um, nervous and there's an ambivalence as to whether this helmet is really protecting or entrapping mm. or you know what's what's happening here and are they do helmets really protect us at all in terms of our our mental health in terms of our sort of um, you know might physically protect us but then the helmet becomes the skull and then you think about these figures as the brains and the mm, little the anatomy. kind of it's almost cla- um, claustrophobia as well you know when they were talking about him going into the mines um, and finding yeah. it hard there's something about when you're inside a space and how that space can can affect your psychology absolutely and and more really profoundly i think understood that um sort of Space is our, you know, is absolutely connected to our sense of anxiety or our sense of kind of um, uh, our emotional sense. So it's kind of interesting. So this whole room is all about internal and external forms, and we have something like this work, which is a tall plaster, upright internal external form, which more made in uh, bronze and also in wood, um, and which you very kind of. Um, deliberately sort of directed to be displayed at a height in which the the viewer could almost imagine themselves inside. Oh, no, it like feels a like or something. it's very it's much like related to Egyptian sarcophagi and, and yeah. Like going into an attic. You know if you go up a staircase. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah There's something yeah, about like, like a horror movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's also very very um well, it's sort of like a seed pod. It's like the stamen of a flower in its uprightness. The figure is very bone-like. Yeah. The outer casing is very fleshy. Mm. It looks very sort of human anatomy about this. It's a very kind of embryonic form, kind of womb-like. So here you sort of get those... I don't know, there's something... There's something kind of odd and um, discomforting, but there's also something very nurturing and protective and um, almost kind of elastic in that kind of outcasing, that it's sort yeah, of like right. it can grow with the internal figure. And yet in this helmet head that we, you know, in the vitrine, this is, um, his helmet heads by this stage are getting more natural and more organic, and yet that internal figure 
doesn't look kind of comfortable in no. there. There is a sense of uh, like straining, and, and there is that anxiety feeling, I think, yeah. that you get there. And what, what about the fabric when you get these kind of um, strings or The r- string threads are so beautiful. They're just so extraordinary. Um, did Barbara Hepworth make? She what? did also That's make some string work. I confused. Who did it first? Wait, well, there is an argument as to who did it first. So Moore says he did it first. Cool. Um, but there are, there are a number of artists that are, are thinking about string this way. And he probably went with Barbara Hepworth and possibly others to um, the Science Museum where they saw these mathematical models that use string. And um, what Moore really loved about it was the fact that, you know, the string itself can create a form, and you can see a form within a form because they are, you know, they create this kind of permeable, transparent kind of surface through which you see, um, and that they pull taut and they can be kind of like contrasted with this very curvy yeah. um, outer Well, it's shell. like Bridget Riley. I mean, you can yeah. see the influence of Henry Moore on so many artists, artists like Anthony Gormley, as we said about mm-hmm. Thomas J. Price. He died in 1986. Mm-hmm. Are you constantly surprised how much he, his voice is so contemporary yeah. and how much he still continues to surprise and inspire the artists that are working now and coming up now? Yeah, and it's really nice and actually really encouraging to see younger artists who haven't you know I think we all grew up in the 80s we had that sort of um, awareness maybe of Henry Moore then I think he sort of fell out a bit of uh, people's consciousness and now it's sort of so great to see new generations like encountering his work and having that kind of response and and yes it does it is a constant sort of um, joy to kind of see that um, like being rediscovered and reloved, and you know, and they are as, they speak as much now as they ever Absolutely. did. One yeah. of my favourite things that the foundation did was when Rebecca Warren did a mm. giant bronze on the outside um, mm. of the of the museum, the, yeah. and it was so extraordinary to see her work because it's such a different aesthetic. Is to that his. a permanent one? Then mm. is it permanent? I don't I think so. I think no. it was just an installation. Okay. But um, I love her work in the sense of the way it responds to Henry Moore and sort of takes sculpture somewhere else again. Yeah. Like it's yeah. almost like these constant stepping forwards with each generation. Yeah. But hers is such a kind of extreme kind of reaction in a way to his but I loved yeah. it seeing her within that context at the foundation in yeah Leeds. yeah yeah it's it I mean that's what Leeds really does so well is to take you know to take Henry Moore's name and to take that sort of core understanding of sculpture and yet to sort of allow so many different artists to run with that in so many different directions and not have no expectations that it will have anything to do with Henry Moore by the end of it, you know. No, but I'm sure he would have loved supporting new ideas. It's really cool. That one there reminds me of something you might find on the beach. Like, I've been walking by the sea now for a few years Uh, and I love it when you go on long walks and discover things and they can almost become, like, really meaningful just in their shape or their form and almost like a talisman or something. Yeah, I mean, as, as... Mary was sort of saying Moore's constantly picking up these kind of bones and stones and shells and he talks about nature's way of working stone you know tunneling kind of um, yes, forms erosion, and pebbles and, yeah exactly and it's um, and it's sort of an ambition almost to kind of work in that way to allow that kind of um, form world to sort of influence his, his way of making sculpture let's go and look at the sculpture outside mm. yeah so there's two, uh, as we came in, we've we got the arch, which uh, is the outdoor sculpt, sculpture, which is there. But then we also have two works outside. We have a work from uh, 53, 54, which is a large interior form. Mm-hmm. And then we have another work from 62, 63, which is called Locking Piece. Now, this is outside in the Cloister uh, Odofield, 
which is the most beautiful space garden. Uh, you have to come and visit. And outside we have these two incredible works by Moore that you said earlier on were craned in. Yes. Um, <laughs> where have these been exhibited before? Did they work in editions? Like are these? Did these exist beyond these singular pieces we're seeing? They do. Um, he did work in editions. I mean, often the the larger the work, the fewer in that edition. Um, the there is another. Um, uh, interior form in Chicago, actually outside the front of the institute in Chicago, wow. um, and it you know it does something different every in every space and everywhere you you place these things, and that's what's so nice, I think here and and just sort of returning to that original thought about Stonehenge, you know what you know you create a sense of place when you put an artwork in a landscape, mm. and you you make people pause and you make people rotate and you make and you add sort of meaning to a place by by inserting sculpture or, or art into well it's that an intervention thing. isn't it, it ma- yeah. it's making you see it yeah it's making you change your eyeline yeah and and hopefully in these works so you know so we have the interior form which is actually the same form from that interior um internal external form in the gallery but now without that exterior kind of shell protecting it and it's sort of standing alone and it's stretching and soaring into the landscape and these apertures kind of, you know, make you feel like the landscape is brought into the work. Um, And that's contrasted with locking piece, which is a much sort of, tighter denser mm. knotted form and comes like from teeth these grinding together yeah, it feels well, like or like a, nut, a nutcracker exactly or, or like a hip bone as or well a walnut yeah more kind of had these pieces of flint and bone in the studio and he's you know he remembers sort of twisting them and then getting locked and he says it's like a child's toy you know those kind of kids games where you kind of lock two well, things together and you can't get them apart you know, the again ones that have like the balls that are yes. metal and they knock against each other things it's, like that it's that kind yeah. of um sense and this is a really knotted form and yet has this um this hole in the middle the famous henry moore hole um so you are encouraged you to see through henry moore hole? well more is kind of Probably <laughs> um, the first sculpture to really put a hole through his carvings initially, and in doing so, kind of um, enhance that sense of their three dimensionality. Um, do this thing of bringing space into the um, core of a work. Um, I mean, there are other artists and so on that were kind of piercing the block, and you know, maybe where there's a, a hip, you know, the sculpture doesn't become just a, a standing kind of figure. You know, like an it arm on hip, a, and then suddenly, becomes, yeah, suddenly there's right. a hole there, and that it does something to its three dimensionality. And more really kind of elaborated on this, and that's when you know holes become multi-part figures, and that's what you know. So we saw a two-part reclining figure, and he does that more and more and he breaks the figure up into component parts and he allows us to he understands i think that we can put it back together in our brain and that sort of perceptual unity didn't require kind of physical continuity do you know what i mean and that you can sort of piece these things together and yeah for me the holes Mm -hmm. always represented this idea of somehow going from one place to another like transformation like a a metaphor Mm. though like like a kind of a brain thing that almost you can art can take your brain somewhere else and transform Mm. your life i always had this really like weird sort of idea of it but for me henry moore really encapsulates that because his sculptures 
are so cared for. Like, he really loves every single section of them. You, you mm. feel it in the hands and the way mm. that he's, he's crafted them, that somehow it, life has meaning. Mm. Do you know what I mean? J- just in his work existing, yeah. somehow we all mean something. <laughs> like, it kind of gives me hope when I see them. Yeah, that's a really nice... Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously agree. I, um, I think that's a really nice way to think about it. And I think it is... <sighs> I think the fact that he hones in on these really powerful forms throughout history, throughout nature, they are somehow subconsciously kind of integrated by all of us, whether we realise it or not. You know, you look at this, you see a, a knotted piece of bone or a knot, you know, and we don't, you know, they're not totally abstract. There is this recollection, this sort of reminiscence, and, and it taps into a very human experience. Um, and that's kind of the power of Henry Morn. It's what he sees in these pieces of bone. It's not just kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'll pick up a that piece of bone be, and I'll enlarge yeah. it to, you know, whatever. It's sort of the, the way that he turns it and the yeah. way that he will, you know, emphasize maybe this really sharp edge and this kind of um, encourages you into the kind of cavities of sculpture. I, you know, you can stand Oh, that's good. Well, the ones outside <laughs> you stand, stand inside. I know, but some of them you do feel like they would care for you or something. Yeah. Like you always go and have a hug. Like, yeah. sculpture would <laughs> yeah. give you a hug. You're right, though. They are joyful. And there is, mm. they and are there's like hopeful. a passion in it, isn't it? That's hopeful. Mm. And yeah, that's, for me, hopeful. what art is. And mm. I was thinking a lot about it because I remember... Um, I used to work with an artist years ago called Catherine Story and she was um, making really small sculptures and um, she's obviously not as well known right now as Henry Moore but she she really got me thinking about this idea of the hole in the sculpture mm, and mm. I don't know, it's really interesting and also in natural yeah. forms, you know, on like yeah. bones or things that you see holes in when you find them. Yeah. Mm. yeah. This, I mean, this show is phenomenal. You must feel incredibly Thank proud. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much for walking us round. I'm sure this is going to be so visited, but for yeah. everyone listening, please, please come and yeah. see the show because not only are the gardens, by the way, looking totally extraordinary, we're stood mm. right in front of them right now. And I love this idea of the kind of wild, natural landscape. Always that, changing. That's actually been incredibly constructed by <laughs> the amazing landscape architect, but um, it's so beautiful. Oh my God. I love all those yeah. wildflowers. So yeah, please. How come do and you see feel? Do you feel show. proud? And do you feel this huge response? Responsibility on your shoulders. <laughs> I always feel a huge responsibility. I mean, this is such, you know, Moore has such a legacy and it's so important. And I think his work can say so much to so many people that, you know, having the responsibility of bringing these things together and working with Mary, you know, there's always a nervousness before you're about to open a show, especially because you are among the first people to see it. So I have no idea what the public reaction is going to be. I hope it's as positive as you, you know, predict. Undoubtedly. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really, really phenomenal, comprehensive, yeah. wonderful experience. So and thank it's just you so, so joyous, actually. I feel really invigorated, you know, by it. I feel... It's just joyous. We're all going to go for dinner now, aren't we? Yeah. I think, oh, I think so. the more family are here. We've met Maury, but there's other more yeah, relatives, aren't there? There's more, more, more. There's more, more, more. <laughs> Great. Well, in, on that note, anyone uh, listening, please go to at TalkArt uh, on Instagram and we'll be posting images. Go to at Hauser and Worth Somerset. Um, but we'll obviously Highly, be linking yes. to them. And thank you so much to being and you're on Instagram for bringing us down here. I guess. <laughs> is it a lot of Henry Moore? Or is it all like your Henry friends Moore and family? Henry Moore definitely is on Instagram. But the Henry Moore Foundation is on Instagram, so you should definitely check us out Brilliant. there. Okay, and bro. you can visit at BMW Group Culture and you can discover about all the things that BMW is supporting. And at Stonehenge. And Stonehenge. Yes, there's and lots. And I loved our journey down but here. Thank you so much, Hannah. This has been brilliant. <laughs> you're really welcome. And uh, we'll thank Mary again when we see I her at dinner. So and then we need to get a picture with you. Okay. But, uh, it's a privilege to meet you both. Thank you. Thanks. So much. We'll be Cheers back everyone. very soon. Thanks okay. for listening. Bye. Bye. 
You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.